How'd you pull up after last week? Good, man. It was, it was a weird thing because it felt like all the hell has been, had been unleashed on me for a brief period. Um, actually, like around 2 a.m., 3 a.m., it got better. Like it, it all went away, but I, I slept like zero for the whole night and I threw up all night. So I was completely out of it in the morning. So sorry about that. No, that's all good. Didn't you say something like, I think I, I did your first, did your level one course and you're saying something like, you, you were sick in Australia, weren't you? Dude, it was a, a, two, a three weeks trip there. The first leg was in Sydney. I was there for two weeks and it was hell because I was there with, with Dane McDonald and uh, he had me work, like give three seminars in two weeks. And so that's like six days of teaching in 14 calendar days. But on the off days, I was actually doing uh, like video stuff. So it was like super tiring. And then after that, I went straight to Melbourne and I was scheduled for another presentation. The first day was fine. I went to get some chicken uh, after the seminar and I got like sick like a dog. I mean, I threw up, I mean, I threw up and, and shat on the floor. It was like, like not pretty. Right. Yeah. And I actually lost so much weight. I, 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 I threw up so much, uh, that, that I got so dehydrated. I was in bed and I could not stand up because I was cramping everywhere. So if I tried to stand up, my hip flexure would cramp that I would shift uh, to try to get the cramp off and my, my hamstring would cramp. So I was just lying in bed and just throwing up on myself because I couldn't stand up. So uh, I had a guy that like sent me some electrolytes and so basically then the next day I was like completely out of it. So I couldn't do the seminar the second day. And then I had to fly home the day after that. So that was an interesting was flight, like 18 hours. Dude, it was, it was horrible. I flew to Canada to see you in swiss and um, i saw your presentation mm. there and i could not adjust to i was there for about eight days my body clock did mm. not adjust the whole time so all day yeah. i wanted to sleep and then all night i couldn't sleep mm. it was absolutely yeah mm. yeah I, i'm i'm good with that though i have a natural i wouldn't say a skill but i can basically sleep anytime anywhere i want so, so I adjust to different time zones very easily. So if I go to Australia, I will have one day where I'm completely out of it. But I can actually force myself not to sleep and to sleep at the right time. So the next day I'm good to go. Uh, but it's always worse. And that's something I, I, I've noticed, not just with the long travels like to Australia, but also to Asia, to Europe, is it's always worse off when I travel uh, west. Yes. West, east. It's always worse east. East for you, so well, yeah. Well, when I get when I get home, I think West. I'm we're we're good. I think I feel pretty good because when I went to Europe, I felt good. But when I went the other way, East to the States and Canada, yeah, yeah. and it seems to be yeah, everyone in Australia going in that direction. But the other way is fine. Yeah, I'm just saying, when I go to Australia, I'm actually fine. I mean, I have one day of adjustment, mm -hmm. but when I come back, it's a whole week. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. For some reason, I don't understand why. Because I even had, um, I even had a friend of mine who went back to America for, for a month and still didn't adjust. But was body clock back sync back into sync as soon as they came back to Australia. 
I even tried um I even tried melatonin, I tried staying awake, I tried all sorts of things. Nothing happened. Hey, it's a weird thing that I, I that is actually accurate. When I come to Australia or from Australia to Canada, it's hell. That, that, that I can I can tell you. Even even going from Europe back to Canada, it, it's also pretty hard. Not as hard because it's only seven hours difference, mm-hmm. but but it's much worse than when I go to Europe. Mm-hmm. I was hoping when you were in Swiss, you were going to talk about the neurotyping. Well, actually, the, the the problem with that is you can't really give a ninety minutes presentation on a topic like that. And my, my, my biggest problem that I have with Swiss in general, and that's why I normally pick my presentation differently than what most everybody does, mm-hmm. is that everybody comes there and, and like have this grand topic. Like you have a guy like uh, Lauren Goldenberg, who's a good friend of mine, will, will speak on uh, periodization for hockey players. Well, you can't give a 90-minute speech on how to program a, a year of training for a hockey player. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor Falcar, a good friend of mine, also presentation on uh, anabolic steroids in women, which is a great topic, but, a but topic. it's such a large... Pardon? But a huge topic. It's a, but it's a huge topic. You can cover that in 90 minutes, so it's end, it's end up just being generalities. Yeah. So when I pick a topic, it's I'm gonna. By the way, the, I know it's late for you, so so thanks for doing this at this time. Yeah. Uh, 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 the first one was on loaded stretching. The second one was on peaking, because these are like very precise topic that even though it might not be like a huge topic, at least you get something out of it mm-hmm. that, that can actually be applied. For neurotyping, the best I could do in 90 minutes would be an advertisement. So people will not get anything from it. Uh, Unless I pick like one very precise topic, uh, let's say, again, peaking depending on your psychological profile. And I couldn't even go with the neurotyping approach because you would have to introduce what neurotyping is first. So the best I could do would be, you know, you have like three different types of, of, of athletes and here is how you peak them for a strength competition, for a bodybuilding competition, for a speed competition. That's the best I could do that situation. But it's uh, <clears throat> that's the limitation of those those events. The other problem, of course, being that you have three different presenters at the same time, three different speakers at the same time. So if you want to see two of them, you kind of fucked. Yeah, so, uh, I found the problem. The only- I think I found the problem that there's two people I want to, see, two or three people I want to see at one time. And then I end up picking the one that I end up knowing knowing something about, and it's like, oh, I could have went that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. But in me, like the, the 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 two years I presented, the guy who I wanted to see the most was presenting at the same time as I was. Oh, that's unfortunate. So that's yeah, that's, yeah. Um, an issue. I did have a, a lot of questions about peaking and and neurotyping, but maybe for the listeners. I know you can't sum it up in 90 minutes, but maybe you can introduce what neurotyping is so then we can discuss and people aren't lost. Sure. Well, neurotyping basically, essentially, it comes from something I've always done naturally, which is always adapt the way I train people, interact with them, and the methods I'm using based on their personality. Because I always found that people with different types of personality will respond better to certain type of training. At first, it was mostly a motivational thing. 
like for example, people who are extremely extroverted, like the, that out there personality that, that will be in your face all the time, very aggressive. Well, if you put them on a high volume, lower weight training, or give them like a percentage they need to shoot for, but they can't go above that, even if it's easy, that will completely kill their motivation. Uh, while other people, on the other end, if I need what you, I want you to do as many reps as you as possible with that weight, if they don't have an exact number to shoot for, it actually demotivates them or actually causes anxiety. Uh, so I learned very early on to tailor my my, my, my programs as well as my, my interaction because first I don't consider myself a good program designer. I mean, I, I know how to design program, obviously, but that's not my skill set. My skill set has always been coaching people in the trenches and making adjustments depending on what I'm seeing out of that person today. So that, uh, the problem is you can't teach that. I mean, you either have it or you don't. And of course, the more experience you have, uh, the better you, be, you kind of. So, so what I wanted to do was try to find a way to systematize what I'm doing instinctively to at least give people <clears throat> the option to know what to do, go, go from a model and then adapt from there. So I was looking for different options. The first option that I, I learned from was Charles Polican. Uh, Charles, of course, being a good friend of mine, or was a good friend of mine, he, he, he wrote, uh, we, we talked a lot, we interacted quite a bit, we presented together. And uh, one article you wrote on T Nation was called uh, the, the Five Elements of Training. Now, the Five Elements of Training was based on what kind of training should you be doing depending on your Chinese element, mm -hmm. which, is, which might sound out there, and it kind of is, but when you understand that the Chinese elements are basically just personality profile, it's just psychology. But because it's your metal sign, your fire type, your wood type, people think it's like some crazy, crazy voodoo shit, right? But it's not. It's actually just applied psychology with different names. Uh, and when I was reading the article, I instinctively knew that there was something to it because you have people who respond well to volume, others to variation, others to, to intensity. So I, I took the course, I started applying the material. Of course, it was based on neurotransmitter profiles, but using the Braverman assessment test. Now, neurotransmitters, of course, being the hormones of your brain that, that have an impact on personality or on, and on pretty much everybody function and your, your capacity to tolerate stress and stuff like that. Uh, the problem is when I applied the Braverman assessment as well as Charles's recommendation, it worked around, I would say, 60% of the time. Like just barely better than a coin toss. Mm -hmm. And that's because the Braverman assessment is extremely limited in that it does not test for all neurotransmitters and not even for the most important ones. It doesn't test for adrenaline. Uh, even worse, most of the questions for dopamine dominance are actually adrenaline dominance questions. So because of, of that and the fact that Charles's recommendations were based mostly on the elite athletes he's worked with in the past. Uh, that it didn't really apply to most people. For example, when you have someone with the fire type that Charles used, which is my, my type 1A, like the extremely high intensity, extremely uh, outspoken, the um, elephant in the porcelain store kind of guy, um, the person you see a lot in powerlifting. Like, mm -hmm. Uh, well, according to Charles's model, the fire type was <clears throat> has a very high tolerance for lifting, 
and, and heavy work, which is true. But because of that, his recommendation was doing a high volume of heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found that that just doesn't work with these yeah, people. I, they found, out. I found something very similar because I looked at, I looked at Pollock's work as well with it. And I thought I would fit in the fire type, but then turns out I'm about, I'm a type one B. So I didn't quite, mm-hmm. I fit some of it, but I didn't fit all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And so, so yeah. And again, that's because his model did not take into account uh, all of the, of the neurotransmitters. It doesn't give you a clear understanding of what's really going on. Now, the, the problem, and I actually made mistakes myself when I started out with the, with the original course for the 1A, for example. I, uh, uh, they are obviously dopamine dominant, which means that they are driven for, uh, by the, the need to win, to dominate, to be the best. They have a high self-esteem and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I thought that it was only because they were sensitive to the action of, of, a, of dopamine. In fact, it's because they just can't break it down. Uh, a type 1A, the guy who doesn't sleep, who basically only has one mode and it's all in or completely shut down. Uh, the person who just can't adjust his personality to other people, it's always in your face. He will always tell you what he thinks, whatever. There is no filter. And they're very aggressive, very competitive. They need to win at absolutely everything. Uh, the reason they're like that is they cannot break down dopamine and adrenaline when, once it's released in the system. Mm-hmm. They have very, uh, a very slow COMT enzyme, the enzyme that breaks down catecholamines. <clears throat> they also have poor methylation. Anyway, for, for both reasons, once adrenaline is in the system, it will stay on forever, which is why they, they can't seem to turn, to turn themselves off. It's always all out, always all out, always all out, because they're always in that higher drilling state. And the driven makes you competitive. It makes you aggressive. It makes you impatient. It makes you stronger, more powerful, but also uh, less compassionate, less empathetic. So it basically turns you into a, into a war machine. Mm-hmm. And that's why they, they are the way they are. And that's why like most successful uh, executives can be of that profile because they will be able to work 30 hours per day or they will be workaholic. They will do whatever it takes to win. Okay, uh, A lot of great competitors, especially in strength and power sports, are of that profile. Mm-hmm. So because they, they will do whatever it takes to win. But because they are always on high adrenaline, they can actually burn out very easily. Mm-hmm. The, the, okay, and I'm going to backtrack a bit, and that, that's quite a bit of like science-y stuff for now, so hopefully people don't fall asleep when they're listening. Uh, so I'm trying to make, make it as secure as possible. The number one problem that people who are training, or, or especially if they're competing, especially if they need to peak for an event, or even just a regular person who doesn't want to feel like shit all the time, right? The number one problem what we often call overtraining, uh, what I personally call training burnout, is nine times out of ten, you are desensitizing or downregulating the receptors interacting with adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you become non-responsive to your own adrenaline. Uh, these are called the beta adrenergic receptors. So when you stop responding to your own adrenaline, the various tissues in your body that responds to adrenaline to make you stronger, make you faster, make you more motivated, make you more driven, increase your work capacity, 
that all goes to shit. So if you look at the muscle level, adrenaline increased the contraction strength of the muscle. It increased the muscle tone of the muscle. Like a, you look at a, an athlete, when you are in a high adrenaline state, your muscle will, will feel harder even at rest. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a defense mechanism because the body thinks, well, I'm in a, in a dangerous situation. I might need to fight a tiger, right? So I'm going to keep those muscles partially contracted. So if I need to produce force, I will be much closer to a high contraction state. So it will be much faster to get to that strength level. So you increase muscle tone, you increase speed of contraction. So that's what adrenaline does at the muscle side. If you look at uh, the, the brain, adrenaline increases motivation, increases drive, uh, gives you a sensation, a perception of strength. So you have higher self-esteem, more confidence. So you, you don't doubt yourself as much. So it puts you in the right mindset to fight a tiger, for example. Um, it also increases coordination from the motor cortex perspective. It makes you more focused. You are more aware of everything that's going on around you. Now, if it's pushed to the extreme, it can actually turn, make you like uh, suffer from paralysis by overanalysis because you, you put more importance in every single detail. Uh, but, but for now, it, at the brain, it just makes you more, uh, more aware. Uh, at the heart level, you also have adrenaline receptors on the heart. And once they are <clears throat> targeted, activated, it makes the heart beat faster, beat stronger. So that sends more blood to the muscle, sending more oxygen to the muscle so you don't run out of fuel while you're fighting a tiger or running away from a tiger. So that's what adrenaline does <clears throat> to make you stronger, faster, better work capacity, more motivated. <clears throat> so if you stop responding to that, because you made your receptors resistant, then strength goes down, speed goes down, muscle tone is low. In fact, one of the main symptoms of someone who is uh, burned out will be a lower muscle tone. Like you wake up in the morning, and for some reason, your muscles just feel and look smaller than they should be for no reason. Oftentimes, it's because your receptors are burned out, and uh, you're probably on a downslope when it comes to performance. Now, uh, you will also have recovery issues because the cardiovascular system is not as strong uh, and your motivation will go down, your coordination will go down. So obviously you can't perform and you feel like shit, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so that's what overtraining is. In most cases, it's because you produce too much adrenaline. So if we look at the power lifter, for example, who's a type 1A, that, that extremely outspoken, extremely out there personally, like the guy who, like think of Eddie Hall, the guy who screams before every lift, yeah. will bang his head on the wall like pure one air, right? Um, so that person is always in that high adrenaline state. It, it doesn't take him much to get there. And it's hard to get out of that. And the thing is with adrenaline is that it's completely dependent on cortisol level. The more cortisol you produce, the more adrenaline you produce. And if you do more volume, volume is one of the main drivers of cortisol. Okay. Mm-hmm. We have six variables that can increase cortisol in training. Two of them are, are, are more important, uh, the three of them. The first one is volume. Second one is intensiveness, how close you get to failure. And the third one will be uh, uh, psychological stress from training. But, but just to get back to our volume thing, if you're someone who already has too much adrenaline, if you're someone who has problems getting rid of adrenaline once it's released, 
Well, the last thing you want is to produce too much of it because you already suck at clearing it out once it's released. If that's your issue and you do a shit ton of volume, you produce more cortisol, you produce more adrenaline, and you have more adrenaline to clear, but you can't clear it. So you're much more likely to burn out those receptors and be, or become burned out, overtrained, overworked. So how does this differ? Some people can actually... How does this Pardon? differ with the type one with type one Bs? Because I feel like uh, there's a lot of those similarities with, that I that I have in type one B, and then like losing the muscle tone, feeling quite fatigued and lethargic, um, and then also mm-hmm. I have a very fast response coming in with with adrenaline. It's one of those things I could just flick a switch, and then I'm on. Yeah, but yeah. I'm definitely not the one one A because I'm more quite more quite introverted. Yeah. So I seem yeah. to fall in the spectrum between two A and one A. Well, oddly enough, the, the 1B is, as you mentioned, between 2A and 1B, 1A. In fact, I'm training a pirate right now. Uh, my original assessment was a 1A. turns out he's actually a 2A. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, 2A can be so sensitive to adrenaline. 1B can also be very sensitive to adrenaline. In fact, a 2A and a 1B can be very, very similar, okay? very small differences depending on, on their level of stress. But the 2A or 1B, when they are in that high adrenaline state, they can actually become like a 1A. You've seen me present at Swiss, right? Mm -hmm. And you never know from listening to me talk that I'm extremely shy, extremely introverted, very low self-esteem. I mean, I'm I'm probably the loudest guy out there when I present. Mm -hmm. But that's because of the adrenaline, right? So so if when you're competing, that's why you can turn that switch on and off. But if you can turn it off, it, it indicates to me that you are good at clearing out adrenaline once it's been released. And, and that's a great quote-unquote correct, characteristics to have because it, it, it prevents you in large part from the risk of burning out. But you can still, that can still happen. Like burning out, desensitization of the beta receptors can happen to pretty much everybody. Some are just more prone to it. Now, uh, so, so that could be the, so, so what the last thing you want when, when you are one B, for example, is overdo it because yes, you can, you can go back down to your normal level faster, but it also means that if you overdo it because you think you can get out of it faster, uh, you can actually desensitize the receptors. The greatest weapon, both of a one B and a, and a two A from a performance standpoint, uh, is that they are extremely responsive to adrenaline. So they can, like, they will be a lot better in competition, for example, than they are in training. Or, or if they are on that day when they, 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 something happens to them, they're like they had a car accident or whatever, they had a, a, a face-to-face with somebody and they are just pissed off, they will actually perform better when they're pissed off because of the adrenaline. They are, they are super responsive to it. Uh, like, like me, if one, the, the more the adrenaline is present, the better I, I perform when I'm speaking, for example. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so, but if you produce too much adrenaline because you do too much training, you can lose that because even though you might not get the same problem with the receptors as someone who already has too much adrenaline, you can still desensitize them enough to lose your superpower. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing, the, the, the best way the, actually, the only way to, to, to make those adrenaline receptors resistant is if you overstimulate them. 
and if you know what, it doesn't take much to make the better adrenergic receptors resistant to adrenaline. You can actually do that in one day. Okay, well, if you have like that one big, okay, let's take a, a powerlifting competition. Okay, tons of people, and, and as a coach and as a lifter yourself, you, you've probably seen that in quite a bit of lifters. Great competition, then the athlete for five, seven days don't want to do anything with the gym. Mm -hmm. They lose motivation, they will eat like shit, uh, they are a lazy bastard for almost a week. Because they, they actually produce so much adrenaline at the competition that they burn out the them receptors in one day. So they wake up the next day, they are non-responsive to their own adrenaline, making you completely lazy, bringing uh, adrenaline, uh, bringing muscle tone way down, potential way down, motivation way down. And they will tend to crave crap at that point for, for two reasons. The first reason, it, it's actually your body being instinctive. Uh, it, it wants to reestablish normal sensitivity as fast as possible. And one of the best way to do that is to make sure that your body does not have any adrenaline at all, which means you need to bring cortisol way down. The reason why cortisol and adrenaline are connected is because cortisol increases the conversion of no adrenaline into adrenaline. Essentially, cortisol leads to the increase of adrenaline. Here's how the body responds to any stress situation. The first, well, let's say you have a potential stressful situation. The first thing that happens is your adrenaline goes up. So your body takes dopamine and it, it makes no adrenaline, no adrenaline from it. The reason is no adrenaline's function is to increase focus and awareness. It allows you to, in a matter of milliseconds, to know if the danger is real or not. So that's the no adrenaline allowing you to know if the situation is dangerous or just an illusion. That if it deems that the, strep, the situation is indeed a, a true danger, it will release cortisol. And the function of cortisol is to make sure that every system is in your body has everything it needs to fight a tiger or run away from a tiger or face any stressful situation. So the cortisol will mobilize stored energy to make sure you don't run out of fuel. That's why it can be catabolic to muscle. Mm -hmm. Because it's not because cortisol wants you to lose muscle. It's because cortisol wants you to not run out of fuel when fighting a tiger and die. So just to make sure, just to make sure it will break down glycogen stores to make glucose, it will break down fatty acid, uh, body fat to make fatty acids, but it will also break down muscle tissue to make amino acids so that you can also produce glucose from that, just to make sure you this, don't run out of fuel. Is this also why like, it might be harder to get that, to switch it on when you are dieting, uh, say, a lower carbohydrate yeah, environment? Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, and I'm going to go back to your topic in a second, but that's absolutely is correct. The, the, the higher the caloric deficit is and the less carbohydrates you have in your diet, the more adrenaline you produce, the more cortisol you produce, 100%. Cortisol is the two first function of cortisol is mobilizing stored energy and maintaining a stable blood sugar level if it's too low. If blood sugar level is too high, you release insulin. If it's too low, you release glucagon and, and uh, cortisol. 
these two hormones will increase blood sugar level. So if you are on a low carbs diet, if you are intermittent fasting, or even if you're just on a, a significant deficit, absolutely you will release more cortisol, which also leads to more adrenaline. That's why lots of people, they have problems sleeping when they're dieting down. That's because they produce a lot more adrenaline and it's hard to shut your brain down when that happens, right? And that's the main issue I have with a keto diet, for example. And I've been a low carbs guy for a long time. Uh, and you know what? Keto, if you are a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, it, it works pretty well if you are using stuff like steroids mm -hmm. because it can compensate from the for the elevation of cortisol. But in a natural lifter, the excess cortisol you get from not only the caloric restriction, but the low blood sugar from a keto diet will lead to very high cortisol level. Lots of people go on keto or go on intermittent fasting and they will report sky high energy levels, right? We see that all the time. Now, I expected to have no energy. I'm not eating any carbs, but dude, I have so much energy. Yes, you have tons of energy because your adrenaline is here. Your adrenaline is sky high. That's why you have energy, but it's not real energy and it comes at a cost. Eventually, it can lead to the desensitization of those receptors and that will lead to issues, right? And that's also when you are training an athlete, for example, and let's say you have a powerlifter or any type of athlete and they need to both peak their performance, but also make weight. That, that should factor in a lot in how you program because the, the, okay, the purpose of the peaking week is nine times out of 10 to restore the desensitized receptors. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you get a boost in performance from a peaking week, when you, 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 let's say you're in a gym and you can barely bench 200 kilos in training, then you do your deload and in competition, you hit 230 or 220 fairly easily. Mm -hmm. Of course, the adrenaline of the contest helped you. But the reason why you have a, such a big increase in performance is because when you barely hit 200 in the gym, your receptors were downregulated, they were desensitized from the excess in, in training. Okay? So when you, when you deload, what do you do? You decrease training stress. And you decrease training stress by many different ways. You can decrease volume, you can decrease intensity, you can decrease intensiveness, how hard you push your sets. You could decrease frequency, you could decrease, uh, you can increase the rest intervals, you can decrease psychological stress in your training, whatever. And you can use all of these tools to, to get back your, 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 your sensitivity. Because what happens is by decreasing any of those variables, cortisols go way, 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 way down, which means adrenaline goes way, way, way down. Low adrenaline allows you to regain the sensitivity of the receptors. So now you're on competition day. Your receptors are once again super responsive to adrenaline. And you are in a high adrenaline state, the competition. Mm -hmm. So that's why you get a big boost in performance. It's nothing magical. It's simply that you regain the sensitivity you might have lost during the weeks of hard training. And the thing is that if you're dieting down on top of that to make weight, you produce a lot more adrenaline, like you mentioned, in training. So by producing more adrenaline, you can more easily desensitize your receptors. That's why personally, I, 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 and of course, that's the ideal situation. The person should be well within their weight class one week before. 
Mm. Right? Before you start the picking process, you need to be at your weight. People cut it way, way too short. They did it too close to the contest. Uh, it, and that's, that comes down to planning. Let's say your competition is in 10 weeks. Don't see it as I have 10 weeks to lose the weight. And especially because people will wait the last minute to drop the weight, the, the, the last three or four weeks. The problem is if you, are, you have to cut weight, when you are deloading, you are losing a lot of the benefits of the deload. Yes, you're producing less adrenaline because you're cutting down on training. But you are increasing it by, on the back end by reducing calories, especially if you have to cut your carbs to make weight. So, of course, it's much smarter to have that, that date. The, the date you need to make weight is one week before the contest. So now you can do a regular maintenance diet when you are deloading, which will help you resensitize your receptors. So this is where it would be a problem if you're like constantly dieting and doing massive water cuts and riding, right to just to make the weight, you're not regaining those sensitivities yeah. again. Correct. It's, it's, it's very hard. But then again, you, you have to, to question first the, 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 the person's choice of weight class. Uh, also, if the, for example, let's say you are competing in, uh, you want to compete in the 90 kilos and you're 110, 115. Mate, you probably are just way too heavy in training for your weight class. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can make weight if you have drastic measures, but you will never perform at your best. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, 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 prefer, I think it's much smarter to stay within your striking distance. And it's fine to put weight on. I mean, I'm training a guy and we went, out, uh, went up to 125 because from his, his body type, his levers, uh, he is built to be uh, of that, uh, a good 120 lifter. Uh, it would be a shitty uh, 100 or 110 lifter because uh, he has, his limbs are way too long. He needs to fill out. Mm -hmm. So there's a point where maybe like at 125, he was not like super lean, but it's the first step to work into that weight class. Mm -hmm. So uh, And the Russians were pretty good with that with Olympic weightlifting in deciding from the start, based on body type, based on genetics, you, your best weight class would be X. So in weightlifting, for example, your best weight class would be 105. Your best weight class would be 94. And your whole training career was built on optimizing performance within that weight class. So they never allowed the athlete to gain too much weight. They stayed leaner in the process. So they never had to make those drastic weight cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that a lot of people, and it's fine. I mean, if you just want to be as strong as possible and do a powerlifting contest on the side to test yourself, then by all means, gain as much weight as you want because it's absolutely true that being bigger will get you stronger just from a leverage perspective. And that's one thing that people don't realize. And I'm, I'm, that, that's something I do, by the way. I jump from one topic to the other. So uh, uh, sorry to it for your listeners, but maybe they will get something out of it. Okay. Uh, uh, because the, body, the issue of body weight, because we're talking about uh, peaking for a competition, and of course, weight loss uh, is an issue because it increases adrenaline, which can decrease performance. But there's another issue here, uh, because weight loss itself, even if it's not muscle loss, will decrease your strength, especially in the bench press, uh, and somewhat in the squat, not, not that much in the deadlift. Uh, and here's the reason, and people have... have seen that all the time, right? You do a bench press, for example, 
and you're dieting down and your bench press goes down, I mean, the first thing that happens is weight will just feel super heavy in your joints. Uh, I mean, you're still bench pressing at 220, but your joint, it, you feel it all in your joints. It's like you're not a well-oiled machine anymore. And eventually, you can barely get that 220. And you can only get 210, whatever. But surprisingly, all your assistance exercises are staying up. Like all your triceps work is just as strong. Your delt work is just as strong. You basically work. Same my prep. You basically explain yeah, well, what it, preps like. Well, everybody, everybody who, who drops weight, it will always happen, and, and people don't understand what's going on. I mean, if your isolation movement, your assistance work doesn't go down, you're not losing muscle. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the reason you're losing strength is very simple. It's actually you're losing what I call passive stability. Uh, anything that packs mass around a joint will increase its stability. Mm -hmm. It can be fat, it can be water, it can be muscle, it can be glycogen. It just packs the joint, especially the shoulder joint. And the shoulder joint, and that's why the bench press is a lot more effective than other lifts, is because the shoulder is much more unstable naturally. So the more passive stability, the more tissue you have around that joint, increasing intra-joint pressure, because it, it, it all, like the skin will pack all of that in together, like a balloon that you're ballooning up, so there will be pressure inwards because of all that tissue here, right? So, so when, you're, when you're dropping weight, even it could be water, it could be fat, it could be intramuscular glycogen, anything, anything but muscle, you're still relieving a lot of that pressure. Mm -hmm. By relieving that, that pressure, the joint becomes less stable. Mm -hmm. Now, if the joint is less stable, especially the shoulder joint, The body does not feel safe anymore. And the body, if it feels that you might potentially get an injury, it will not allow you to use your, strength, your full strength potential. What's really funny that you say that. I have, um, I have an athlete. Uh, she has the biggest bench press in Australia. So she took Bev, Fran Bev Francis's bench press record that was held for like 30, mm -hmm. 35 years. And she got 157.5 kilos. Um, nice. And we were sitting, she was sitting at near 100 kilos when she hit it. Um, it came down, then we brought it back up and, and we rebroke it again at one, 161. Now she's lost about, now she's lost about 10 kilos. And it's just two things, two things happen. Her last best bench press session is, was 130. And the second rep mm -hmm. was a grind. And the other thing too, she's lost, she's lost shoulder mobility as well yeah. when we were expecting it to. Yeah, because, because the body. The body feels unsafe. Okay, if you if you don't have passive stability, mm -hmm. the body will instinctively try to compensate by creating active stability, by contracting, by keeping all those muscles that can stabilize the shoulder joint contracted to not allow you that excess range of motion. And I have a similar uh, story. It, it, in fact, it's probably even more drastic, and it, it illustrates the, the, the fact really easily. When I was at my strongest on a bench press, I was, I was hitting 200 at uh, like 97 body weight. And I was bench pressing twice a week. And uh, on that Wednesday, I hit a, a triple with 190. Uh, Solid. So on Friday, my, my next session was on Saturday. On Friday, my wife and I, we take a, a long hot tub like a, in a jacuzzi, like two or three hours. I, we didn't do anything crazy. I mean, we're married, so we don't have sex anymore. So that was like pretty 
<laughs> so it's pretty easy. Then we didn't drink, we don't do drugs. But afterwards, I went straight to bed because I was tired. The next morning, workout, I was feeling great mentally. Dude, I fell with 160. Hmm. And then I weighed myself and, and I was a full five kilos lighter because of water loss. I mean, I didn't lose five, I didn't lose even one ounce of muscle. But just the fact that I lost water because of the, the, hot, uh, the hot bath, my, my joints were, were less stable and my body did not allow me to, to handle those big weights. Now, the deadlift won't be as affected because it's mostly a, a, a pelvic area thing, which is much more stable than the shoulder. The squat will be a little bit more affected because there will be more knee flexion involved than in the deadlift. In a deadlift, and the knee is a bit more unstable than the hip, but still more stable than the shoulder. So, so that's why the squat is a bit more affected. The bench press will be the most affected. Military press will be a close second, uh, and the, the the squatting patterns will be will be third. So you can actually lose strength without losing any muscle at all, and that's one thing you need to consider even when you're trying to make weight simply by by losing water. Because it will negatively impact your bench press. Now, the, 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 the bet you're, you're making is, well, the, the adrenaline from the competition will be able to compensate from the drop in uh, active and passive stability, which will allow me to still be strong. So that, that's the bet you're making. It, all, it doesn't always work, especially if you make yourself resistant to adrenaline. Now, the strategy I use... To, uh, to try to prevent that. I mean, uh, for example, a uh, powerlifter I worked with, we had a, he had a 20 kilo drop in body weight in six weeks and uh, his bench press stayed the same. Yeah, he had zero drop in performance. The reason is that a large portion of his training is eccentric and isometric training. So for me, uh, eccentric training could be very slow eccentric so if I get your bench pressing and you're lowering the weight in six seconds, for example, mm -hmm. that's phase number one uh, with the normal weight. And we, I also do a lot of weight releasers work. Mm -hmm. So the strength hooks that you put on the bar, allowing you to overload the eccentric. So you can put like 40 kilos more during the eccentric and you lower that in six seconds. So they become very, very, very strong eccentrically. Uh, I have a bobsleigh athlete. His best squat is uh, 270 kilos, Olympic squat, full squat, no belt, no nothing. So it's 270. And he can lower, slowly under control, he can lower uh, 330 all the way down in six seconds for three reps. Mm -hmm. so, so that's super strong. Same thing, we do a, a lot of isometric work. So we will do bench press, for example, three pauses on the way down. Sometimes even pauses on the way up when we are deloading. So that forces them to use less weight. But the thing is that both the slow eccentrics and the eccentrics overload, as well as the isometric pauses, increase your capacity, your body's capacity to have active stability. Now, I don't like that like crazy like stability work, doing rotator cuff work. That, that shit doesn't work. No, not for strong people. Uh, I mean, you also have like unstable lifting, which also doesn't transfer well to regular lifting. But if you're increasing, like the, you're focusing on the eccentric and you're adding pauses, you are improving automatically your capacity to stabilize the joint for different reasons. First, during an isometric action, okay, you have a greater activation 
of the synergist and antagonist muscles. And the, the purpose of that is to increase stability, to fix the joint where you're doing that pause. But that actually trains over time your capacity to create that stability. So when you're lifting, you can do it. Same thing with eccentrics. Eccentrics, you are better controlling the weight. How many people actually don't never see their weak points or their technical flaws because they're going down too fast? Because speed can compensate for weakness. So by forcing yourself to go down, you will see the weaker points and you can strengthen them more easily. Okay. Uh, furthermore, the uh, eccentrics will strengthen the tendons much more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And if your tendons are stronger, if your tendons are thicker, the body feels safer. There's less chance of injuring your tendons if they're stronger. So even if you lose some passive stability, the risk of injury, if you build those tendons up, is not as high. So it will allow you to use a greater percentage of, of your strength. Also, and, and you can relate to that, when you have that, that drop in body weight, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing that happens is the bar feels heavy in your hands. It feels, you feel it in your joint, and it's always, always worse in the eccentric than the concentric, always. I've seen that myself. It happened to me. It's always the lowering of the weight that's the hardest. It hurts. It feels bad. And when you try to lift it, it, it pardon? sucks on the bench press. Exactly. Mm. But, but, so if you become super strong in the eccentric, like a, 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 like a normal person will be around 10% stronger eccentrically. 20% stronger is decent. I want athletes to be 50% stronger in the eccentric. Wow especially if you have that body weight drop. Because now, even if you lose that, that stability, since you have so much room during the eccentric, it doesn't feel like shit anymore. See what I mean? It's not automatic. It's not that you do five weeks of eccentric training and it works. When I train athletes for strength, I use the same system. Of course, that depending on their neurotype, their personality, I will change the volume, I will change the intensity, the methods. But I, I, we have three whole body workouts. So we have the three lifts. With a bobsleigh athlete, I don't deadlift. I do power cleans or power snatches, but it's still a hinge. Uh, with powerlifter, we do uh, squat, bench, deadlift. At first, they have a horrible time adapting because it's such a demanding workout. But after six weeks, they're, they're, they're fully adapted. The cool thing now is that the, the, the competitions are a breeze because that's how you used to train. Lots of guys in Europe and Ukraine, Russia, that's how they train. Olympic weightlifter, that's how they train. You can work up to that gradually. Uh, the Norwegian, that's how they train. Uh, and once a week, we emphasize the eccentric. Once a week, we emphasize isometrics by adding pauses. And once a week, it's just regular lifting. Uh, and we had a fourth workout, and most of the bodybuilding stuff is on that fourth workout. So it would be all low-stress exercises, uh, triceps work, hamstrings work, glutes work, upper back work, but very low-stress exercise and not heavy just, just for building muscle mass. So, so that's how I train athletes for performance. I mean, you guys don't have to use that, but it's just to illustrate that we train the three types of contraction year-round. And it's always periodized. I mean, uh, for example, we periodize the eccentric, we periodize the isometric, we periodize the concentric. It's pretty easy to program a peaking cycle, 12-week cycle for concentric, for regular lifting. 
Like depending on your mentality, you could start with slightly higher reps and you gradually lower your reps while you're increasing the weight. Some will use other methods like clusters, like wave loading, stuff like that. But for eccentric, that's what we do. For eccentric, the first four weeks, it's slow eccentric. Uh, the second four weeks, we will be faster eccentric with more weight with the weight releasers. Uh, sorry, it would be, for example, so let me backtrack. The first four weeks, it's just regular slow eccentrics during your lifting. The second four weeks, we add the strength hooks, weight releaser on the bar. We don't have that much weight, maybe uh, 10, 15 kilos per side. And we do a very slow eccentric, six seconds with the added weight. So the weight on the bar could be, for example, 80%. During the con and then you might have 10, 15% more on the bar uh, with the strength hooks. So when you, during the eccentric, you have more weight. Then you do the concentric with less weight and you put the weight releasers back on for the next rep. Then the last four weeks, it will be a large eccentric overload. But now the speed is faster. So it will be a regular eccentric, like three seconds down, but with a lot more weight on the bar, like maybe 20, 30% more. So you have a total of about 110, 120 on the bar. Of course, with advanced athletes, we actually go up to 150. But that's just something we build up over time. But it, just to show that we are gradually working up to that. Same thing with isometrics. The first four weeks, we will have three pauses during the eccentric. So three, three seconds pauses. So you could, for example, lower the bar three inches on the bench, pause three seconds. Lower mid-range, three seconds. Lower one inch from the chest, or two centimeters from the chest, three seconds, then to the chest and lift the bar up. The second four weeks, we will have only one pause at the athlete's weakest position. Well, just above the weakest position because the tra strength transfer would be good anyway and you do your reps that way. A and the last phase, I, uh, with advanced athlete, I will use an, eccentric, an isometric overload. So we use strength hooks, once again, to have an overload. Let's say you do a bench press, you have 200 kilos on the bar, you will put uh, 20 kilos on each side and you lower the bar mid-range and you hold there for six seconds with the extra weight. Then you lower the weight back down on the chest. The hooks unhook from the bar and you lift at 200 kilos. That's how you do your reps. So you're, imagine the strengthening effect on your weak point. Imagine the stability your shoulder needs at that point. It's not something you can do right now. You need to work up to that. That's why I periodize over the weeks and over the months of training. But my goal is to... I can 100% imagine the, the amount of stability that would be created because I do that for, for people who have inability to maintain their stability at the bottom of the bench press. Yeah. So we'll pause just before right. they touch their chest and then, right. finish, yeah. then finish the set and they tend to stay much, much, or learn to stay much tighter. Absolutely. And it's instinctive because at first, an isometric, as I mentioned earlier, it increases the activation of the antagonist and synergist. Automatically, you're more stable. Automatically. Second, it's much easier to focus on body position and muscle activation when you don't have to move. When you have to coordinate movement and muscle activation at the same time, if you are a motor moron, that, that's very, very hard to do. Let's say, for example, you are doing a sport movement. Could be, uh, let's say, a I play golf, so let's say a golf swing, and you, one of your positions sucks. Well, if you try to correct that position while doing a swing, you'll never do it. You need to just spend time in that position, just hold it there to tell your body this is how it should feel. Well, the pauses, in fact, the athlete, 
They need to be intellectually involved when they do their bench press and they're pausing two centimeters from the chest. They need to be intellectually involved in what's going on in their body. Am I, are my lats activated, engaged? Am I trying to screw the bar? Am I trying to rip the bar apart? So you have, and if you have a three, five, six second pause, you as a coach, you have the opportunity first to analyze the lifter's position, but also give them a cue that they can apply right now. I think there is nothing worse than giving a lifter a cue while they are doing the rep. So let's say they are squatting and they already started their squat and you tell them, push your knees out. First of all, push your knees out is not a good cue, but you get the idea. Yeah. Or screw your feet into the floor. When they already are moving, it will just confuse the heck out of them. It, it will completely, you can give the cue before they're lifting, not when they started lifting. But when you are doing an isometric, you can actually give them a cue while they are holding the weight, which makes the, the correction much easier. And it will tell them what they need to focus on. So, so it's a great motor learning tool, isometrics are. So it, it will also increase stability. But I actually build that in the programming, especially if an athlete, I know they will have to lose weight to make their weight class. Mm -hmm. Because I know, I know for a fact that they will lose passive stability. You can't not lose passive stability if you're losing weight. It will always happen. That some people will not be affected performance-wise because they have that active stability that can compensate for that. If you don't that, have that naturally, you need to build it up. Very interesting, yeah. Definitely something I want to start applying to. Um, well, I'm already applying it kind of in some way, but that clarifies a lot of other things that we can definitely start to, start to implement. Yeah. And you really need to develop it with the lift themselves. I mean, personally, I mean, and that's one, one place where the neurotapping stuff can become interesting and help you understand. Some people are good at transferring improvements from assistance work to the main lifts. Mm -hmm. Others are not. Uh, like someone with acetylcholine level. Acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter responsible for motor learning. So those who like learn skills very easily, have good memory, and can also control their adrenaline fairly easily, they normally have high acetylcholine level. The higher your acetylcholine level is, the better you will be at transferring gains from one skill to the other. Because what, what acetylcholine does is, first of all, it speeds up uh, the, the, the transfer, uh, 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 the, the action of the neurons. So basically, it makes everything in your brain works better, work better, uh, acetylcholine does. Also, it's good at retrieving information from your brain and retrieving another information and making them, to, blending them together to create a new solution. So that's what you need to do when you're transferring gains from one skill to the other. Let's say you've trained front squats for your whole cycle, well, when you get to back squatting, well, you want those gains to transfer. So people, some people are naturally good at doing that. Some people aren't. Like me personally, if I stop back squatting and I front squat for exclusively for 12 weeks, if my front squat goes up by 40 kilos and I get back to back squatting, my back squat will go down. After three or four weeks, it will go back up, but I can't readily transfer that. 
So for me, when I wanted to get when I, I when I want to get strong, for example, when I when I bench press my heaviest weight, all I did was bench pressing. Mm-hmm. I was bench pressing a lot. I was doing tons of volume because I needed to practice that skill. So what the moment I stopped. What neurotype is that? Huh? What neurotype is the highest acetylcholine? Uh, normally the one B. One B, because it's fascinating. I've I've always trained um, my type one Bs with a lot less accessory work and high frequency of training. I always found I found that with all my well, type type one A, not, not in a different way, but type one B. And I was hoping to talk about this a little bit more down the track. But then I've I found how in these categories, in my mentally in my mind, I always had. I guess where these people where these people fit, and I've always yeah. had type one Bs in, in a high, higher frequency high frequency training, but of mainly of the same list with very little variation and not as many accessories, maybe one or two accessories in in a session. You know, I, I think that you you are probably you, you might not be a one B, and maybe you are, uh, but you're 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 extrapolating what what worked for you with the one. I mean, again, that will work if they're motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but normally the one Bs, they will often like require variation to stay motivated. Not as much, I, well, not as much as a two A. The two A needs the most variation. Okay. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, if you have high acetylcholine, you can transfer gains from assistance work better. Doesn't mean you need it because they are also better at, at moving. Mm-hmm. So just by doing the main movement, they become super efficient. They will absolutely be gaining. Anyway, personally, personally, I believe that most of the way, and that's where I'm actually like different than guys like Louis Simmons, for example. And that probably comes that, that probably comes from the fact that I, I was an Olympic weightlifter for a while, for a long. But that's where I, my, most of my, my knowledge of training strength comes from. And I've always been a guy that is a high frequency guy on the big basic lifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even with the guys I train for for strength and performance, they do the squat, the bench, and deadlift three days a week. Now, some of them I will increase. I will include variation. For example, if someone needs variation, like the two A, then one day we might do back squat, one day we might do front squat, one day we might do zercher squat, for example. But the closer we would get to a competition, the more we would stick to the to the basic lift themselves and drop the assistance work. Uh, now, the, the number of assistance exercises I would throw in would depend mostly on their tolerance for volume mm-hmm. because that's my first thing. The first thing, I, uh, it's kind of like doctors. Uh, the first like, rules of doctors is first, do no harm. Okay? Me, my, 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 the first, my first principle is first, do not burn out. Because nothing will kill performance faster than burning those receptors out. So that I absolutely want to avoid that. So the first thing I'm looking at is how much volume can one tolerate? And me, my own approach. And I'm not saying everybody should do that. Okay? There, my way is not necessarily better than anybody else's. It's just the way I work because it's my preference. That's I, I, I'm good at programming. I don't know the other systems as well is... Me, it's a high frequency of the big basic. That's what I do. Uh, and that's where I start from. So I want to find out first, is the lifter capable of doing a squat bench deadlift or a squat bench power snatch three days a week? He can. So now it's a matter of how much volume and how much volume should I use for each lift? And then from that point on, can they tolerate assistance work? For example, I, I 
one of the Bob Sega I'm working. One is a 1B, one is a 1A. Both are pretty much the same strength level. They both can squat 270, which is pretty good for a non-lifting athlete. I mean, we're talking like uh, Olympic-like high bar squat for a guy weighing like 97 to 98. So that's decent strength. So they can all, they can both squat 270. They can both deadlift 300. Uh, their bench press sucks because we don't spend as much time. So it's like 150, 160. Uh, they can all power clean 160, 165. They can power snatch 130, which is decent. Uh, the 1A, and they all, they both run fast. The 1A, he does three exercises per workout. That's it, three days a week. He cannot do more than that. The moment we, he does more, his speed goes way down, way down. It, it doesn't take long. Uh, again, because speed will go away before strength. So that's a better gauge to see if the person is overtrained or not. The, the 1B, we can do the three basic lifts and two assistance exercises per workout. And we add a, a fourth workout where we do more assistance work. He recovers really well from that. So my goal is finding the amount of work you can you can perform. So it, it's that's always to me more important than fi than finding out do you need more assistance work. I, I want to find out can you tolerate more assistance work. If you if you can't tolerate assistance work because you can't tolerate the volume, to me it's pointless to find out which is the best assistance exercise. What I will do is I will maybe substitute one of the main lift with an assistance lift that will emphasize the person's weakness, for example. Uh, but it, it's me, I'm all about volume management mm -hmm. uh, because if you burn your receptors out, you can't perform regardless of how good your program is at fixing your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. One question I had before when we talked about peaking and I found different um, strategies with with peaking different types of people so my, my story with this is that I decided to take a bit more of a team-based team-based training where I'd write I've written I wrote three or four different programs and put them put people into various profiles um, yeah. but at the start the first time I tried doing this many years ago is that I put in, pretty much put in male female because um, they were both in a similar way responded similarly but there were obviously some variation between each individual yep. but then i found like i already read read some of your work on t nation with um uh, neurotyping and then i took him to the competition and there uh, certain groups of people did really really well and um for the men and um and a lot of the women did really really well but there was like a characteristics of some individuals that um characteristics of some individuals that had like so the some of the some of the men that had certain characteristics would have responded better to being on the second type where that the females did, and some of the females that were usually more usually showed to be more stronger naturally um, mm -hmm. would have done better on what I put on with, with the guys. Right. Um, this light is not on. You have to pay your bills, man. Oh, it's a motion sensor light. <laughs> Um, so I, so then the, the next time, the next time round, I, um, I decided to put them into, put them into, two, uh, into two types and two subtypes of type one, type one, a type one B. And, um, then 
every single person across the board, besides, besides a few people that may have had injuries and things like that, other variables like that, all peaked and performed really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the common thing is, is they all shared common personality types. And this is when I started to link yeah. together that, um, that there's an influence, there's a person, the personality type is also influencing the way they respond to training and the way they recover. And so mm-hmm. I found when you're talking earlier about peaking, my people who type 1A, type 1B found that they could basically hit their, they'll need about two, sometimes, and some, I've even pushed it out to three weeks of a taper coming into a competition. Mm-hmm. So the heaviest lifts will be about three weeks, three weeks out. The intensity would drop, volume would main, would start to, t- volume would start to taper. And they responded much better to that than if they held their intensity way too close to competition. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then with the type 2A and type 2B, they did a lot better where their intensity maintained till sec, um, uh, one to two weeks out, um, but then maintain mm-hmm. a level of training as close as, uh, as close to competition as possible. Yeah. So they'll still train, they'll still have a training session two days out from a competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then some of them, then I started seeing a lot more. See the type one, type one A. Um, I did start to see the burnout a lot more. So they couldn't heavy, they mm-hmm. couldn't hit heavy that frequently um, because right. then they're, they're, by their second session, sometimes you see it in the second week, performance drops. Um, mm-hmm. And also did a little bit of work with velocity based velocity based training tracking their tracking their velocity, and you mm-hmm. can easily measure how how that comes in waves and every second week you'll have a high performing week and a very low performing week um, mm-hmm. with some of those type one individuals. Um, and then this is where with the type two, I found did really well with high frequent, high frequency of, of those lifts. So I found the type two B did really well with squatting two, maybe three times a week, benching three to four times a week, maybe deadlifting two mm-hmm. times a week obviously in various intensities so they don't don't burn out. Um, but they, they were able to respond to that where if a type 1A was to do something like that, they'd completely burn out. Yeah, well, it's, again, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the capacity to break down adrenaline. Yeah. Like the, the 1A, the 1A, they are really bad at breaking down adrenaline because their COMT enzyme, the enzyme breaking down adrenaline is not efficient, it's slow. And they are poor methylators. So the mo- when they go heavy, in their mind, heavy is a battle with the weight, right? The 1A, you have to kill that weight. I have to win the workout. So it will be an all-out fight response. So it, it will get a big adrenaline spike, and they can't break it down. So it's very easy for them to down-regulate, down-desensitize their receptors. The 2A uh, is very, very good at breaking down adrenaline. So, so he can actually do that, and more often the two A and the two B. One characteristic, they, one characteristic they have is that they have lower self-esteem. They have, they, they don't trust themselves as much. And I know that I'm, I'm like that. When I was competing, my biggest issue is if I have not hit a heavy snatch this week, in my mind, I won't be able to do it in competition. Mm-hmm. So, so they do need to maintain some form of heavy lifting longer just to stay confident, to, to, to trust themselves. Otherwise, they'll go into the competition with too much self-doubt. 
the downside of that, the issue is they can very easily overdo it because there's a big difference between hitting a heavy lift and then just pounding yourself to the ground with heavy lifts, which is what I did when I was just training by myself. Uh, I, I, I could try like my opener 10 times in a workout just to make sure that I would know I would make it. Then, of course, I would fail because I would burn myself out. So there's a, a, a difference where you, you need a 2A, someone who has lower self-esteem, doesn't trust himself as much. They, they, knew, they do need confirmation of their lifting capacities pretty much every week. Doesn't mean they need to do, to do lots of it there. If they are left by themselves, they will do a lot more work too much because they need to convince themselves they can do it. And oftentimes they will, and that's not for you because you're, you are coaching them, but for people listening or training like by themselves, uh, the, the main issue with people like that is, for example, let's say they hit that 180 bench they will want to hit it over and over and over and over again to convince themselves that they will hit it every time. And that will lead to the down regulation and, and drop in performance. But you're absolutely correct. The, the people who are like naturally stronger, the people who are built for lifting, people who are the 1A personality, that extremely extroverted, takes a lot of space, they are aggressive, they are competitive, they are driven. These people, they, they don't need to hit that weight, that heavy weight often before a competition because they, they don't lack the self-confidence, the trust to be good in competition. They, they actually are waiting eagerly for that competition. The 2A and the 2B and also the type 3, they actually say they want to compete, but they really don't. Okay, it, it, They might be lying in bed and they fantasize about it. Because the 2A and the 2B personalities, lower self-esteem, they need the approval of others. They need the respect of others to feel good about themselves, right? That that's how they work. So they might fantasize about the competition, earning, it, earning them respect. So they are looking forward to the competition in that regard, but they will hate pretty much every minute. Well, they will hate it until adrenaline kicks in. So they will not, there's nothing worse for a 2A than, uh, let's say they are in an heavier weight class, hearing the bar drop from the other weight classes or seeing people warm up in a warmer room. There's nothing more excruciating for them than that because it just ramps up their stress, ramp up their stress, ramp up their self-doubt. And it, to some extent, it can actually burn them out and they might not perform because of that. So that's a, one of the main issues. Because it's not just about the peaking process. is how do you handle them on the platform? How do you handle them in a warmer area? Uh, some people, they need to be challenged. They need to be made fun of. They need, you need to make them aggressive, slap it in the face, whatever. Some people need to be reassured. Uh, they need to be told that everything's going to be fine. And yet other people, they just need a very intellectualized approach. Like you give them all also a minute-by-minute breakdown of what the warm-up will, will, will look like. Where do, will they put their bags? They, everything needs to be done according to plan. Uh, to put their brain in the right mindset to perform. So that, that's, of course, good coaches, they know their athlete and they do that instinctively. But for those who don't have the experience, it, it's pretty cool to understand the, the driving force of all personalities. The one, a, the one personality, the one A, one B, their driving force 
is winning. They actually love competition. They can't wait for it because they want to win. Training is fun, but there's nothing to win there. Okay? The type two personalities, to A, to B, they need to win people's respect and self-approval. In fact, it, it, it's weird that way that the, the, the type one personalities, they need to win. I mean, for them, second is, is first loser, right? For the type two, the type two, they don't work like that. It's weird. Oftentimes, the, the best position for a type two to be in is second. Because second is good enough to earn them respect. But they will feel like the number one is happy and they contributed to making that person happy. That's always, always, I always wanted to finish second. When I would fantasize about like competition either in bodybuilding or weightlifting, I finished second, which is kind of weird. I mean, they are actually satisfied finishing second or third if they see it as good enough to earn them respect from the other lifters. Uh, and they want people to like them. The, the, the type 1A, they don't care if, the, if you like them. In fact, they probably hate it when you like them. Uh, the best example of a type 1A personality being Donald Trump. I mean, that's a typical 1A. Like a, zero care about what other people think of him, and he will do his own thing. So 1A are like, not that, that extreme, but they're like that. The 2A and 2B, they need to be liked by everybody. There's nothing worse for them than when someone doesn't like them. So... In fact, winning oftentimes, like, everybody hates the winner because they, they wanted to win. And the type three, the type three is like the accountant, the superstructure, paralysis by overanalysis. And, and he's all about the process much more so than the actual results. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny how you say that a lot of this um, is, in, is instinctual. And, all, like, when you're explaining that type, type 2B, it seems like you're just um, explaining this one person I one one of my persons on the team, I feel she doesn't want to do yeah. want to do powerlifting, but she'll still come in every single day to train to ensure that she can make it to make it to the platform. But always get that yeah. vibe; she yeah. just does not want to do it. You, you will actually have more women falling in that category because of estrogen. Uh, estrogen act okay. The neurotransmitter that is more dominant in the two B personality is called glutamate. Uh, and glutamate is in large part what I call the emotional amplifier. Glutamate amplifies the intensity of every emotion you feel. So if, if you're happy, it's the best day of your life. If you're in love, it's like head over heel, the most important person you ever met. Like they are the needy person, the one that they will dress the same. Weird couple, right? Uh, but when it's bad, it's like the end of the world. When they fail, they take everything personally. And it's very hard to provide them constructive criticism because they will take everything personally. So you need to use the hamburger approach. One compliment, the corrective, then one compliment to make sure they don't break down. But so glutamate amplifies those emotions. And the reason is, if you look up glutamate, in fact, its main function is to increase memory. It helps you memorize stuff. Uh, but people don't understand how glutamate helps you memorize stuff. The brain, the brain is selective. You don't store everything that happens to you 
to the same extent in your brain. It, it would make sense. Like if my brain would store every single information that happens to me every day, I would go crazy. So it must, it must make decision. What information do I store in my brain and which information will occupy a larger place in my brain, making it easier to retrieve. Okay. And one of the ways your brain works to decide which information will be stored more importantly than others is the emotional state you were in when that happened. So the more intense the emotions were that you associate with an event, the more likely that event is to be stored in your memory and you occupy a large place. That's one of the main reasons why soldiers suffer from PTSD, for example, because when they have a certain thing happens to them, like at war or whatever, the emotions are so intense that it's just burned in their brain and the more space it occupies, the easier it is to retrieve that information. Okay? So glutamate, by amplifying emotions, also increase memory. Okay? And the thing is, the more glutamate you have, the more those memories will have an emotional component. So you actually are storing these memories with the emotional load of that memory. So the moment you had like one bad lifting experience or one bad life experience, every time something like that happens to you, you take that memory out with the emotion, amplifying the emotions you are already see, uh, living. So anyway, the, 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 to get back to the women, estrogen increases glutamate activity. So that's why women tend to be more emotional than men. I say tend because they're always, uh, like to quote Jordan, well, to paraphrase Jordan Peterson, uh, like women tend to be more agreeable. They tend to be more emotional, whereas men to be, tend to be more disagreeable, uh, more uh, less empathetic, more competitive. But there will always be women who fall in the, that more male-dominant personality and vice versa. Okay, they are all. But, but, but generally speaking, women tend to be more emotional because estrogen will amplify the glutamate response, amplifying emotional responses. But here's the thing. Stress will also amplify glutamate. So you can have people who are great, normally they, they are like very even keel, no mood swings, whatever, and all of a sudden when stress goes up, they become a train wreck emotionally because cortisol will increase the, the, the emotional response of, of glutamate. Uh, so if you have a woman that already is more responsive to glutamate because of estrogen, and the higher the estrogen is in the woman, the more glutamate will be sensitive. So you have women with very high estrogen, more lower body fat, for example, which is a good sign, uh, tend to have more water retention, uh, bigger breasts normally, they have a higher estrogen level, they will also be more emotional because more estrogen means more glutamate activation. But you put that person in a high stress situation while the emotions become even high, more intense for the good and the bad. I mean, if, if, if everything is good, they will be good. They go to the gym, they, they, they have a good performance, it will have a magnifying effect on their self-esteem. But if they don't and they have a bad, or they have a bad experience, it, it will be destructive. So that's why these people can't handle failing in a gym the way the 1A personality would. Like if you have a 1A personality and he fails a squat, it will just piss him off and he will, he will put five kilo more on the bar and he will get it. 
I've had athletes like that. Yeah. I mean, an, an athlete was just doing his, his first, he was, a cross, he was a former baseball player, great athlete, former CrossFit competitor, and he wanted to start Olympic weightlifting. And his best snatch in the gym was 120 kilos. It was 82 kilos body weight, so 180. First competition, I was actually a, a judge at the contest. So I was, I was in the warm-up room. I couldn't do his warm-up, but I was seeing the warm-up room on the side. And he was missing the lift after lift after lift. So he had like that, his opener in the warm-up room, 120, and he kept missing it and missing it and missing it. Right. Mm. So now the bar is called. It's 180 kilos. It is not showing up in, in weightlifting. Contrary to powerlifting, the bar never goes down. So if if your opener is 120 and the bar is at 120, then you have to go because it will not go back down to 120. It's not everybody does his first attempt. It's always by weight. So one, 120 on the bar doesn't go up. 125 doesn't show. He actually upped his opener to 130 kilos, mm -hmm. 10 kilos more than his PR. And he was missing all of his warm-up attempt. He actually nailed the 130, and he finished the competition with 135. Uh, that, that's crazy. But that's a typical example of the one A just gets pissed off when he misses a lift, and it actually uh, improves his performance by increasing adrenaline. The 2B, it will crumble. I mean, I, I had a figure skater I was training. She was a national, junior national champion. And she was supposed, that was her first year as a, as a senior in the senior class. And she was supposed to easily make top three in the national championship. She was seen as the future of Canadian figure skating. So I'm at my friend's house and we're playing a, a drinking game. So basically, we put 500. Uh, songs from the 80s on a computer which would randomly pick one song and the first one who gets the right song wins and everybody else has to drink, right? Classic drinking game. Anyway, at seven, figure skating starts. So I, I go to the living room, which is always weird when you have a guy's night out and one guy goes to the living room to watch figure skating. But anyway, but the athlete that was training was competing and she turned in the worst performance of her life. Like she fell on skills that she masters and will hit 99 times out of 100. So the next week, we are in the gym. And I say jokingly, well, we're going to work on stability in abdominals because some people here fall a little bit too often. Now, that was my first stint working with figure skaters. I was used to training football players and hockey players like, and Olympic weightlifters. And they would have like risen to the occasion. It crumbled her. And for three months, she did not speak to me once. It took me six months just to be able to have a working relationship with her. Of course, I was just starting out as a coach. But that just goes to show that some people, much higher emotional response, they will take things personally. And something that is seen as negative will be destructive for these people. Whereas for some people, we don't have the same... Like the 1A basically has no glutamate. That's why they have no empathy. The 1A, they don't care what other people think of them. They don't care about other people because they don't need their approval. Okay, and, and here's, here's the big fallacy, okay? There's no such thing as altruistic people. There's no such thing as good and bad people. There's no such thing as people who put the well-being of others before their own. That does not exist. Every single person in the world is self-centered. The thing is, most people don't even realize they're self-centered and they actually don't look self-centered because the way they act 
make them look like they're putting the well-being of others before their own. But the reason is that what their brain needs to be happy is for others to like them. Like me, what I need is to feel respected, admired, liked, and loved by other people. Because of that, I will go the extra mile to please other people. I will train people. I train people for free for a long time because I wanted them to like me. Uh, I, I, okay, just recently, I have a like, decent home gym, and we, we're in lockdown right now. And I'm in the grocery store. I've seen a guy that I've seen like once or twice in a gym. I, I, we are on speaking term, but I wouldn't call him a friend. And so uh, it sucks. I can't train them. My training was going so well. Dude, come to my house. I, I, I'll loan you my equipment. So I loan him like 180 kilos of weight and, and a competition powerlifting bar. I'm not even sure if I'm going to see them again. Not because I'm a good guy, but because in my mind, if he likes me, it, it makes me feel good. Uh, so me, I'm also self-centered. But what I need to feel happy is for others to like me. So the way I act to get what I want make me look like a good guy. But I'm no different than Donald Trump. It's just that our brain needs different things. But everybody will always act in their own self-interest to give their brain what they need, what it needs to be happy. It's, it sounds like some of the stuff that I've heard from, I think his name is Jordan Peterson. His name is? Yeah, that's exactly it. Jordan is one of my uh, greatest inspiration. I mean, the guy is super smart. Of course, he's Canadian too, but I, I, uh, hungry, I, I agree 100% with everything he's saying. The guy is just super smart. Yeah, I love, I love what he said. Where someone, someone asked him about um, if people, is it better for people to follow the common good of what the group is to say something like, to address climate change or should people look after the, should look, should look after themselves and he was about looking after themselves because everything is still um, is really just to please everyone else and because that's what the culture is that's what the culture is doing the culture is trying to address climate change I mean of course we should be addressing climate change but um, the motivation behind people was that it makes you look good exactly everyone's doing 100 percent correct Mm. It's the same thing like if you look at virtue signaling, right? Like, uh, something we see uh, on the internet all the time, virtue signaling is actually associated with a narcissistic personality. Mm -hmm. They are signaling on the internet that they, like, it's called uh, virtuous uh, victim signaling. So they want to show you that I'm oppressed and I'm a good person and I want to, like, I'm a social justice warrior or whatever. Uh, and, but in reality, you are not doing that to help other people it, it, or, or a cause. It's to make yourself look good. It's the same thing when you, you look at these, like, uh, and I don't want to get too political here because I don't want to be banned from Facebook or lose 50,000 fans. But if you look at in the U.S. at the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, 80% yes. of those people are white. I mean, when's the last time you've been oppressed? Yeah, and, and even then, it, it, when uh, and that's something that you will have a successful black business owner speak out against Black Lives Matter, and you will have twenty-year-old white kids still living with their parents call them racist. Mm -hmm. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, that that that's, makes sense, but that's exactly that because they want. 
it, it, it's something they're doing to make themselves, in their mind, be respected or liked by a certain group of people. The group of people that at the moment is seen as the group you need to please. Okay? So if at the moment the anti-racism, the anti-climate change or whatever is the in quote unquote crowd to be in and you need to be seen as part of that group or being respected for that group you will act in a way to under respect but it's not for a cause it's not to make the world a better place it's really not it's to make you feel better about yourself 100 of the time and the thing is those who are more likely to become like those virtue signaling people or those who actually have no accomplishment of their own. It's called a surrogate goal. When you are not contributing anything valuable to society, if you don't have a passion, if you don't have something that sets you apart and validates you as a human being, you will be looking for a surrogate goal, something that will give you that validation. Like, for example, let's say you are a world champion powerlifter. That gives you validation. If you are a world-class coach and you're known by thousands of people, that gives you validation. If you have a family and wonderful kids and a good job, it gives you validation as a human being. But if you don't have any of that, you will desperately look for something that makes you feel good about yourself, a surrogate goal. So that's why most of these guys who are in those protests are 19, 20, 21-year-old with no jobs and still living with their parents because they have not yet achieved a goal worthy of feeling good as a human being. I'm not saying they will not achieve that. I'm not saying they're worthless. They just don't have the experience yet to have achieved that thing. Uh, so so they are, that's why throughout the ages, Throughout the ages, you go back to the French Revolution, you go back to any big change, and it's always the youth that, that starts the revolution. It's always the youth that takes the street. Why? Simply because they don't yet have built something that makes them feel validated as a human being. And it's not because they're no good, it's because they didn't have the time yet to do it. So they are desperately looking for something to make them feel good about themselves and worthy as a human being. That's how it works. You won't see a, and that's why successful businessmen, they are or successful athletes. Well, you have, of course, you have the I know successful businessmen, successful people, people with large families. They 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 won't go protesting. They they don't go on social media and. Virtues, or become uh, virtuous victim signaling because they don't need that to feel good about themselves most of the time at least mm. yeah it's all really interesting they had um, um, it, it pretty much spread everywhere because here and even here in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne there were huge there were huge protests on Black Lives Matter and it was during just the midst of lockdown, like when I mean, the COVID cases were still going out, and it was still like still building up. And it just seems to be, I don't know, their 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 agenda um, with 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 that was just seemed to be more superior than trying to get out of lockdown. Or yeah, that's in the U.S. In Canada, we didn't have well, even in Canada, but it was this big thing where you're. 
you have lockdown orders. You can't go out without, you can't have big social gatherings. You can't like be with your family because you cannot be two different households at the same place. Uh, you can't have seminars. You, because I, I canceled many of them. Yet, you can have 10,000 people in the street marching for Black Lives Matter. And what they said is that the, the, the social importance of the cause it is more important than the risk of the pandemic. Well, it's, it's one thing or the other, right? I mean, that's something that to me, in reality, politicians are just saying that because they want to score points. Mm. They, they, they know that right now that movement carries a lot of power. They know that young voters will be voting for years to come, so they don't want to be remembered for those who told these young potential voters to not do that. And they want to invest in their own political future by saying that protesting these causes, that's important enough to, make, to put the whole society at risk. Man. I'm not saying it's putting the society at risk because we can debate the actual risk of the pandemic or the, the COVID. Uh, but, you know, you can't say in one hand that it's going to wipe the human race apart and you need, to, you need to take those extreme measures to avoid the spreading and say that, you know what, it's fine to protest Black Lives Matter because it's a worthy cause. You, you can't say that because it's two opposite things. It doesn't work together. It's a worthy so, cause to have small businesses to continue, to continue to operate and make a living. 100%. 100%. I mean, and I don't want to put necessarily like weight into the, the, the conspiracy theory, but if you wanted to kill the economy, to start a new economy based mostly on uh, artificial intelligence, on computers, uh, and get rid of the brick and mortar thing, you would not act differently. That's exactly what you would do. That's not what I'm saying is happening, but to me... I mean, for the actual risk of the virus, the measures being taken, even, even the, the, the World Health Organization uh, has come out and say that a, a lockdown is not a good way to deal with the virus. They say that the only reason, the only justification one can use lockdowns is to give a momentary relief to the healthcare system. To avoid overloading it. That's the only justification, but it does not help deal with the issue. Seems so very, really, you are killing you. It seems very politically driven because here, Mel- here in Melbourne, or down in Melbourne, I'm here in Brisbane, um, they were locked down since March and they only open it, they open up in a week's time. So early November. So they've been in lockdown for nearly eight months. Um, and it's way beyond the course. Like, there was no stress on the medical system whatsoever. There's plenty no, of exactly. Benefits. And and all that's all that's happened. It just seems to be in a, a, a political agenda of some sort because I mean, people. I knew 100%. a lot. Knew a lot of gym owners down there, and they said they haven't even spoken to another adult for like four months, and they were getting depressed because all they got is their, you know, yeah. they're stuck with children or they're st- or, or you know having no contact with anyone else, and they can't even make a living anymore. You know, these people are just depressed, not, not, not even just because of money, just because, like, they're just stuck. And it, it served no, a cause. You know, you know, Belarus, actually, the, um, 
they refused help, uh, financial help from the World Bank because the World Bank actually, one of the conditions for making them the loan was that Belarus go into lockdown. Mm. So why would a bank loaning money insist on, on those conditions for the loan? Well, they'll have to keep borrowing money to sustain, artificially sustain the economy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's only, crazy. So anyway. It's only going to last as long okay. as until, until, every, until the government stops doing their payouts. They're still doing payouts now. Yeah, well, again, payouts is one of the... Okay, I get it. It helped people out, but then it's going to... Here in Canada, what it did, we had the, what's called a PCU. Basically, the government gave uh, $2,000 a month to those who didn't work. And for many, it was actually more than they were making with their regular jobs. And now that when the economy, when they actually reopened the businesses, the government kept on the PCU, okay? So now nobody wants to get back to those lower-end jobs. So companies, you have small businesses, they can't even find employees because they would make more money or almost as much money not doing anything because they get uh, the help from the government. So that, that's actually also contributing to the economy. All right. So let's head back to, let's head back to the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember, I think I listened to another one of your podcasts saying you may be de- developing or looking into an objective measure to determine uh, neurotype. Well, actually, I, I do have a test. Uh, I, I developed a test uh, last year and I, and I upgraded it this year. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm right now. I'm working uh, with, but I, I haven't started yet. It, it's in the discussion. It's uh, artificial intelligence company uh, from the U.S. and we're looking at ways to use like facial recognition, facial expressions, uh, heart rate changes, and various physiological measures to help diagnose someone's neurotype along with the test. Because here's the problem with any type of personality assessment test. There will always be some bias involved. You answer based on your perception of yourself or on the image you want the corrector to see you at. So, and that's quite common. You will always answer, the less self-esteem you have, the more you will answer the test to give yourself a good image in the eyes of the corrector. And people who have high self-esteem will often like, way overestimate their worth. So they will answer things that, that doesn't always make sense. So that's the limitation of, uh, of a test. I mean, I'm going to give you an example. When I first read the, uh, the Five Elements of Trading by, by Charles, and uh, when I went to his courses, uh, when you read it, you well, if I'm a strength athlete, I need to be a fire type because a fire type is genetically gifted to be a strength athlete based on Charles's articles and material. So when, and the fire type is dopamine dominant, so very high dopamine score. So when I did the brief of an assessment, when you do the test, you actually see the questions are, are grouped by category. So you have all the dopamine question with a big header, dopamine. So subconsciously or not, 
I wanted to have a high dopamine score because Charles is type, the fire type, is the one that is the best for strength sports. So I always answer with a, like to get a higher dopamine score. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the score was, the, the, the assessment was completely worthless because I, I wanted it to be that way. So that's a limitation of um, the written test. In the ideal world, the only way to make a, a, a written test truly effective, unless you're someone who is extremely objective, uh, it would be to have someone who knows you like the back of their hand answer the test for you. Let's say you've been married for 12 years, your wife will answer the test for you. Because these answers are much more likely to be objective about who you are than if you uh, enter them yourself. As far as an objective test, uh, there are some uh, physiological markers that are interesting. I, I, I had some discussion with uh, Stefan Yanev uh, in Australia when we were back there. And Stefan works with uh, uh, Sydney University quite a bit. And he was looking into doing tests uh, to evaluate your neurological profile based on several markers like the type of COMT enzyme you have, your methylation status, and stuff like that. Because there's a correlation between uh, the COMT type. If you have a slow COMT, so uh, the enzyme that breaks down adrenaline is very slow, and that's genetic, that's genetic, then you can probably only be a 1A or type 3. So that would be a genetic way of like, giving you an idea of what type you are. Uh, if you measure the methylation status, I mean, the 1A, the, one, the type 3, and the 1A are poor methylators. Uh, so, so that can give you an idea. The 1B is an over-methylator. So that can also give you some idea. Uh, again, that these are objective measures that can help you make a better assessment of the person. But it's not something I've been uh, able to work on a lot recently first because I'm stuck here and I have like 10,000 projects at the same time. I think, I, I think my, my camera and mic died, so I am now recording through the laptop. But that was a, um, a big talk, I think. That was, I think there's, there's so many more questions I'd like to ask, but maybe, maybe we can uh, leave it there or catch up. For to a follow up, yeah, that would be good. Um, that list of questions here, I think I only got through like a few, <laughs> but um, that's always how it goes. Like, in fact, normally people, I, I told people not get a list of questions because you will not get through it. I yeah. talk way too much, so so yeah. sometimes, it would, so but, but then again, I think that that just turns out to be pretty decent. Just two guys talking training, I think that that's how it should be anyway. Yeah. And 40% politics. There you go. Well, it's just, I mean, if you want to like be polarizing and get some traction, talk politics, religion, or nutrition. These are the three topics that will get you the most hate and the most love. But anyway, it's just attention. It's attention. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. And um, hopefully, we'll do a follow up and go through this a little Absolutely. bit more. So. Right. Just reach out and you can, when, can, I mean, we're, we're in lockdown again here, so I don't have anything else to do. Okay, cool. We'll maybe follow up in a few weeks or something. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye.